Welcome to a special audio and video edition of Real Christianity. My name is Dale Partridge, and in this episode, I have a powerful discussion with Pastor Jeff Durbin, where we unpack a biblical definition of Christian nationalism. What does the term really mean? Is it supported by scripture? And how should Christians feel about it? But more than that, we also tackle post-millennial hope and practical ways for Christians to be kingdom-minded in a fallen culture. All that and more coming up right now. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Real Christianity. My name is Dale Partridge. I'm here with Jeff Durbin. We're at Apologia Studios. We're going to be talking about an important conversation, a touchy conversation for some, Christian nationalism. What does it mean? What's a biblical definition of that term? There's so many people that are out there having different perspectives, different ideas about this term. I'm going to turn it to you, Jeff. What is, like when you think of Christian nationalism, what does it mean? And when you think of a biblical example or biblical definition of Christian nationalism, how should we be thinking about that faithfully, biblically? Yeah, it's interesting because this uh, terminology, Christian nationalism, Christian nationalist, is something that uh, is is becoming very popular. It's it's almost like you didn't even hear this terminology three years ago, but now it's all over the place. People are doing news reports on Christian nationalism and everything else. So when that first was being used, my first response is, I don't really know who started this and what group this represents. So you're always fearful sort of as a, as a Christian, as a pastor, you're sort of yeah. fearful saying, well, I, I've always believed the gospel is always taught. The Great Commission says you want to win the nations to Christ. So yes, you want all the nations to be Christian, Christian nations. But I, I, it was more like a confusing moment of going, who's involved in this? Who created this you know, terminology? And who's ahead of this movement? Uh, you know, is, is there such a thing? And so it's sort of, you know, you, there's a leeriness to say, well, of course I believe that, I don't, but I also don't want to get linked up with somebody. Yeah, are you getting associated with a group of people that are extremists with an unbiblical view? Exactly, and, and it's just a matter of seeing the, the Christian nationalism and understanding conceptually that that's just the Great Commission. So my, my, what I've said about this, you know, in the last years, I've said, why is everybody so surprised about this? Like, why is this such a shock? And I think there are some very clear answers as to why it's so shocking, and that's that the evangelical church in the West has stepped away from uh, foundational principles related to the gospel of the kingdom, the authority of Christ, the lordship of Christ over every detail of life, uh, Christ over culture, all of that. So it would make sense that the you know leftists, the liberals, the atheists, the you know the humanists, uh, the secularists would hear. Wait, you believe that every nation should come under the authority of Jesus? You want everybody right. to 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 be sort of like in a Christian nation? To understand, yeah, they're shocked by that because the Christian church in the West, the evangelical church, has so stepped away from fundamental aspects of biblical truth, biblical revelation, and the gospel itself. And so, it, of course, it's shocking to them to hear that there are Christians who believe that Christ is king. <laughs> you know I mean? And this, is, this shouldn't be shocking to the church. Now, I understand that the world is going to have this element of they, they create their laws, their secular government, their secular laws, and they would call it democratic. But as soon as a Christian says, well, we actually want Christian laws, we become some sort of extremist. Right. 
Yeah, and, and I think it, it comes down to another issue, and that's the myth of neutrality. The myth of neutrality that, that atheists constantly pretend, the unbelievers constantly pretend. And unfortunately, let's just be honest to, to failures within the Christian community, Christians have, have, um, have held on to the myth of neutrality and pretended the myth of neutrality for a long time. And uh, if you look in Christian history, Christian history is, is in no way perfect. And it's not, you can't point to any place in Christian history where it was a utopia, but you can see the church being sanctified through time and doing things that are glorifying to God and just right and true. And you can see the Christian church in history has had a pretty consistent hold around the authority of Christ over all things. And so if you look at just the nation that we're speaking from right now, this great experiment that we're a part of, you can see early on when people are coming over, um, whether it's the Huguenots, the Puritans, the pilgrims, whoever they may be, when they're starting colonies, it's in the atmosphere. It's just assumed that when we are creating a colony, a culture, a community, a town or whatever, that Christ has authority here. That's just the assumption. It's the operating assumption when they're making their laws. You can look at the laws of New England. You can look at the the, the first uh, case law system that John Jay, our first Supreme Court justice, puts into place. They're just quoting freely, comfortably, and with peace. They're quoting from the law of God, the Pentateuch. They're quoting, you know, easily from Exodus, easily from Leviticus. The assumption is, is that Christ is king. He has authority. So if we're going to ask a question about what is right and true and lovely and beautiful in our culture, or we're going to ask a question of what's just, we're going to look to the law word of God to find out what that actually is. And again, it wasn't perfection, but you see that that's just the operating assumption is that Christ is king. And it's one of the things I say often, I try to say as much as I can, um, we often say as Christians very comfortably, Jesus is Lord, not understanding that early on in the history of the church, the first century in particular, saying Jesus as Lord is treasonous. Mm-hmm. It's uh, subversive. Yep. Many were uh, martyred by it. You're killed for it. I mean, the early Christians, I often say, as again, as much as I possibly can, the early Christians weren't killed for worshiping this man named Jesus. Rome is pagan. You can worship whatever you please. The problem with the early Christians is they were saying Christ is king, mm-hmm. that he is Lord. They wouldn't say Kaiser Curios. They wouldn't say that Caesar is ultimate. They said, no, Jesus is ultimate. I can't say that. I'll be a good citizen. I'll be a great citizen. I'll live peaceably. I'll pay my taxes. Mm -hmm. But no, Caesar is not ultimate. He's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. For that, they were killed. And so it's just been understood throughout Christian history that Christ is King of Kings. This is what I always say. We say it so easily, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but we don't really think about the implications of that claim. The implications of the claim is that Christ is the King, the ruler, the one with full authority, over the kings of the earth today, not someday, but he has all authority in heaven and on earth today. That's a claim made by Jesus before the ascension, before some very confused disciples. Yeah. And Lord of Lords means he has authority over the lords of the earth today. So Christians have been making that claim since the very beginning. This isn't a novelty. Yeah, this is all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth and go therefore to make disciples of all nations. So this is, again, this is just when we think about creating Christian nations, it is not a shocker. It shouldn't be a shocker. The problem is that we have a gap between what the church says and what the church does. Right. And that gap now has been going, wait, you're actually saying that you're meaning what you say. You're actually going to, to, to produce what you actually say you're going to produce. That becomes threatening right. to the secular culture. One thing that you said that was important, yes, you could read the Mayflower Compact. You're, you're going to see the Christianity, the, the biblical 
bibline, as, as uh, Spurgeon would say, bleeding out of those documents. You're going to see, uh, I, I read the inauguration of Thanksgiving by George Washington. It sounds like the Apostle Paul wrote it. Mm. I mean, you're just reading, you're like, this was our president writing these things. Right. It was, again, it was a part of the air. And we are still writing as a church and a culture on the coattails of that righteousness mm -hmm. today. And so what would you say to somebody who claims themselves to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, uh, would maybe even say these words like King of Kings, Lord of Lords, but actually, you know, is against the idea of Christianity influencing the government or Christianity having some sort of interplay in the culture at, uh, at an influential level that would actually change the way that, that the culture views authority. Yeah, I would say to that person, you you have a misunderstanding of the scope of the gospel. And uh, typically, what we understand the gospel to mean today is one aspect of the gospel, and that's reconciliation and peace with God through faith in Christ. Uh, we're talking about things like the atonement itself. We're talking about uh, the imputation of righteousness, God forgiving our sins because of what's accomplished at the cross. So in other words, what we understand the gospel to mean today popularly in evangelicalism is this personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. That's really it, yep. is that, you know, Jesus uh, died for you and rose again so that you can have a personal romance with him. Now, I'm saying that to make sure that it's very clear. Like, that we're, we're not saying something else. We're, we're dumbing down the gospel itself to this personal, intimate relationship with Jesus, which, by the way, is true. Yeah. I, I am saved by him. I am known by him. I'm loved by him. My name was on his hands. He understands uh, my sins. He forgave me my sins. It's finished. It's very personal. My name's in the book of life. That is a personal name. It's mine. But that's not all it is. Exactly. So I would say that it's sort of a, a taking the gospel itself and squishing it down to one concept, justification by faith. Mm -hmm. And really what you see Jesus teaching and say, just the gospel according to Matthew, just read the first uh, five chapters and you'll see that Jesus very clearly understood and it's very clearly being taught there in Matthew that he has the royal right to the throne. That's why his genealogy is there. Yep. Because uh, the king of the world who was going to have dominion over the entire earth and the knowledge of God was going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea and all the nations were going to obey him. Matthew has to show you that he has a right to that throne. So he gives you Jesus' genealogy, I think, through his, his adopted father, Joseph, uh, the royal right to the throne. Luke is Mary's, uh, clearly. And so he has a physical right to that throne, and he has the royal right via adoption through Joseph's lineage. That's just an yep. excursion. But sure. when you read um, Matthew chapter 3, you see John the Baptist, the first thing that he's preaching when he comes in, he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, the rule of God in the world is at hand. Now, it's important because that's what the Jews were expecting. They were expecting a kingdom that would bring justice and righteousness and salvation to all the nations, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So it's good news to them when John the Baptist says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were anticipating this ruler, this Messiah, to come and bring salvation and justice righteousness and the law of God yep. to the nations. So it's good news to them. So when Jesus goes into the wilderness, defeats Satan, the temptation, the first thing that he's preaching when he comes out of that temptation is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it says that he's going about preaching the, here it is, gospel of the kingdom. So evangelicals today have squished down the gospel to this one concept of justification and they've missed the good news of the kingdom. So when someone says, 
Well, I'm against the whole idea of like Christ ruling and reigning over every single nation. I would say, well, you don't understand why the rule of Christ is good news then. Yep. So in other words, you don't have any good news of his kingdom. You have good news of reconciliation and peace yes. with God through faith, but you don't know what, what, what makes the kingdom, the rule of the Messiah, such good news for the world. And it's good news for the world because, and this is a problem, you know, we talked today about so many evangelical pastors that will make claims or at least teach theologically in line with something like what Andy Stanley teaches, where you sort of have to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Uh, you know, the Old Testament, that's just that law stuff. That's that mean old God from the Old Testament. And what we have in Jesus is a sweet God who just loves us and just wants to, you know. Personal relationship with Jesus. And it's that's the focus. Right. And whereas the Old Testament, same God. And by the way, same gospel yep. uh, being proclaimed. And that revelation of God is the same God. It's his word. That revelation of God told the story of a Messiah who would bring the nations to God. He would bring salvation and reconciliation and peace with God. But he would also rule over the nations and all the nations were going to come to obey him. It's one of the things you ask the question about. Christian nationalism and like Christian nations, the nations obeying Jesus. Yeah, it's in the first book of the Bible. I mean, not only do you have the promises to Abraham of him having offspring like the stars and like the sand of the sea, that's a very successful kingdom in my book. That's a lot of people. Um, but you also see that the, the, those movements towards this understanding of the Messianic king that actually rules the nations like Genesis 49.10, this one who is coming. Uh, to him shall be the obedience of the nations. The obedience of the nations sounds like Christian nationalism, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when we look at that, just that basic term, I, I think about what you're saying here, Jeff. You have me so many things that are firing off in my brain. But, you know, we often think that Christianity is some fairly new religion when in reality we need to think about it. It is the fulfillment of a very old, and I would say the very first and true religion. Yeah. And so we, we need to recognize, obviously, the systematic nature of the Old Testament, the New Testament, how that the Jews were looking forward to a king. Yep. Yet we are not looking to Christ as king as as we should. And but as um, savior. But as savior only. Yes. Yeah, so, savior only. Yeah. So we look at him as savior, we don't look at him as king, we don't look at him as Lord. Oh, and I know actually that the emphasis in scripture, I think his savior is used very few times in comparison to the term Lord in 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 the Greek is used many, many, many times. It's actually the primary description of Jesus's character. What he does is savior, but who he is is Lord. And I think that focus has been obviously missed, but I think about like a backyard. I used to live in Oregon and we'd have this backyard where it was, the, it was grass and then it was the trees and it was the foothills and then it was the mountains. And I think a lot of Christians today are focused on the backyard, which is that personal relationship with Jesus, the gospel of, you know, Jesus Christ, the, the thing that I'm saved, you know, justification by faith alone and Christ alone. And we, we get that. And that's what even a lot of the reform camp focuses so heavily on, but we miss the kingdom mm. and all the other elements that come with that gospel. And as soon as we bring those elements up, people are shocked. Like, what, is this a different version of Christianity? It's like, no, this is actually the historic version of Christianity. And it's why people were building, you know, spending 300 years building buildings and, and establishing governments and establishing rule and, and allowing Christ in every part of their life. And why we are having such a different view where we're building churches inside of strip malls. And, and we're, we're just, what I'm leading into is this element of, eschatology, long-term view, looking at Christ as King, the, the last things, how should we be looking at this whole discussion of Christian nationalism as it relates to eschatology? And I know that we're both post-millennial, we both have that view, 
for someone that's coming into this world that's got a premillennial view or a dispensational view, uh, they might not even know what the amillennial spot is. I don't want you to spend a lot of time describing right. all the positions, but explain the postmillennial position and how it contrasts to the pessimistic view that's generally held by most people in the church. Yeah, well, it goes back to the, the question of uh, the Old Testament. What does it say about this coming Messiah, this King? It's, it's important that we recognize that the New Testament, the New Covenant, New Testament documents are not a novelty. It's, it's not something that dropped into the first century as something that would totally surprise them. Yep. I mean, Jesus actually chastises people for not believing what the scriptures had said about him. Like in, after he's raised again from the dead, he's on the road to Emmaus. He's got some very confused disciples. who are like, oh, we thought he was the Messiah and everything else. Well, Jesus calls them slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken, right? And so he challenges them that you were supposed to know this. The prophets foretold this. The, the message of Jesus is not a novelty. This is really, of course, Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, but it's really one revelation from God of what he's going to do in redemptive history. Mm. So you you can't divorce one from the other. And, and it's important you make the comment about, you know, this personal relationship with Jesus. We're, we're, the person who sort of takes the gospel and squeezes it down to just a justification of person, this personal relationship with Jesus, we're not saying that it's either or. It's a gospel of a kingdom or it's what you got. We're saying that you are missing the glory of it because it's not just personal salvation for you. It was salvation for the nations. Yes. You're missing that. Yes. And what we're saying is that it wasn't just this, you know, private relationship with Jesus for a few people here or there. It was that Jesus came to win the world to God. The knowledge of God covering the earth like the waters cover the sea is all encompassing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Psalm 22, where it gives us that vision of the passion of the Messiah down to details like they pierced his hands and his feet. Well, how does that Psalm end? And this is just three, this is peppered throughout the entire Old Testament. You've got all these different portraits of the Messiah, you know, this ruling, reigning king, this one who brings justice to the nations, this holy one, this righteous one, this one who won't grow faint or weary until he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law, Isaiah 42. It says in this passion psalm, it says like, here's what he's going to do. Clearly he's going to die. But then it says as a result, as a result of this passion, it says all the families of the earth will return to worship Yahweh. Well, that sounds like Christian nationalism to me. Yes. All the families of the earth, all the nations coming to worship Yahweh. That's the, the, that's the scope. So it's bigger than my private salvation. It's the world. And so when you look at the Old Testament, there's no getting around the fact that the kingdom of the Messiah is going to be all-encompassing. The kingdom of the Messiah was going to be here on this earth with real benefits to the, to the world. And the reason I'm saying that is not to go into all the details of the differences between Amil and Primo. It's not spiritualized. It's not this, just the spiritualized thing. It's not just out there somewhere in this gassy experience or vaporous existence out there. We got to get to that spiritual realm out there, whereas God's not concerned with the physical. You can't get away from the fact the premillennialists have it right. They're, they're right. When they say, no, I'm sorry that this rule of the Messiah is going to impact this world. It's physically going to impact this actual world. They're yes. right about that. Yes. They're wrong on the timing. Timing, yeah. Um, but the amillennialists who will essentially spiritualize the whole thing away out there and really just essentially operate on the basis of like, God's not really concerned with this physical world and the transformation of institutions in the world. The kingdom's going to come after this world. It's it's like out there somewhere. Well, well, 
they're right in that it is a spiritual reign that began in the first century. Postmill and Amill all agree on that because that's what Jesus and the apostles taught very clearly. Um, but they're wrong in terms of they're missing what the Old Testament and New Testament clearly teach about the reign of Christ and the impact it actually has in this world. So as an example, I think it's most important not to say, you know, Jeff, can you articulate this in a way that, that inspires me so I'll follow? I don't want that. What does the scripture say? Genesis 49.10, one of the first promises where you begin to get a, a, a vision of who this messianic king is. It says that uh, to him shall be the obedience of the nations. Now, I often point this out because I think it is powerful that when the apostle Paul gives a systematic explanation of the gospel in Romans, mm-hmm. that's where we love to go to explain justification. But that's only part of his discussion. Yeah. Uh, it's a very important part. It's everything. We need to die for it. Uh, but Romans 1, he opens up his letter to the church in Rome by saying uh, about Christ that the goal is to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations for the sake of his name. What's that sound like? Yeah. That sounds like Genesis 49.10, all the nations obeying this one. And Paul opens his explanation of the gospel with those very words, all the nations obeying Jesus. And he ends, Romans 1, Romans 16, he ends with that. He ends with to bring, bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations for the sake of his name. So when someone says, you really want all the nations to obey Jesus? I'm sorry, that's Christianity. (laughs) Why are we disputing this? Are you surprised? This is the goal of every missionary. Right. When you send a missionary into a foreign country, your hope and your prayer and your investment of money and all you're giving is hoping that 100 years from today, that that nation is saturated with Christians, which would make it a Christian nation. And uh, so your, your sincere desire as a believer should be that your nation becomes a Christian nation. Right. And that it would dictate and determine and influence its leaders, its government, its laws, its politics, its education, its media, everything. We, we should not, you know, I think about Doug's, you know, tagline, all of Christ for all of life, right? I, I think that's such an important perspective that we have missing in the church today, where we have compartmentalized Christ to that justification by faith alone, but we're not actually, um, we're not actually experiencing the further part of the kingdom, again, that backyard metaphor that I was talking about there. And so, you know, again, when you go back to the Great Commission and Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So we have a ruling and reigning king now. Mm -hmm. We know the scriptures throughout the New Testament talk about a ruling and reigning Christ now. We have the reality that the commission actually go and to, to make disciples of the nations. So we have a mission there. We also know that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that starts out small, which aligns up with church history, right? We have a small church in, you know, 70 AD that's moving on um, post that time. And then what do we have now? We have a, we have a growing church. And so I think about, uh, you know, the kingdom of God is like 11 and leavening the whole lump. That we, We're seeing this happen. So many people are pessimistic because every opportunity of something bad happening in the world, it, it reinforces their pessimism. Right. You know, they're like, you know, someone robbed my neighbor's house. See, the world's coming to to crap. You know, Jesus must be coming back soon. Everything's bad. Oh, something happened on the news today. Everything's bad. So every possible piece of bad news becomes an affirmation of everything getting worse. But talk to me about how actually systematically over the centuries, we're actually seeing an improvement because we're seeing more people come to Christ, more people indwelt by the Holy Spirit more people raising their children and multi-generational faithfulness, more churches being established, more Christians are filling the earth. Is that trend going to stop? No, 
Uh, because, and, and I can't, I, I'm not saying that just as an, uh, as an optimist, I'm saying that because the certainty we have is, is the revelation of God. It's what he, whatever he has spoken, we have certainty about. Christians can have disputes over things that are not clear in scripture or not even talked about in scripture. We can have grace and respect for one another. And we can have all these other side areas where we might disagree and say, well, we're not really certain about that. Maybe we have some principles here and there in scripture, but we can have disputes over those things. And that's great. We should do that. But when it comes to the certainty that we have and say that's that's the truth and it's going to happen, it's based upon the revelation of God. Scripture says, Psalm 1101, the very the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament, I always say it's God's favorite Bible verse, apparently, is Psalm 1101. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit in my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The New Testament loves that verse. Mm-hmm. God loves it because mm-hmm. it's quoted so much, more than anything else in the Old Testament, alluded to, quoted from. And when Paul quotes that verse in 1 Corinthians 15, he explains the gospel and what he says in the first century, after the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension of Jesus, he says, he must reign, Jesus. So he's reigning now, first century, Paul's context. He must reign until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet and the last enemy is death. So for the Apostle Paul, if you write down his timeline of history, just draw it out on a piece of paper. His timeline is he's reigning now and he's going to do so until every enemy is under his feet. And then finally death will be defeated after what? Every enemy is defeated. Yes, the kingdom is established. Yeah, so the progress of the kingdom of God in history is this upward swing and it is a process. It's a process. Um, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 teaches that it's a process. We know the Christmas verse, El Gabor, mighty God, uh, the son, the child given to us. It says of the increase of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. There, there you go, see? And uh, yeah. on, the, on the throne of David to establish with justice and righteousness forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And Isaiah 42, very clear verse. I think it's the, the verse that kicked Dr. White over the edge on post-millennial thinking was he was reading Isaiah 42 amongst the mass of texts. But he said to me when he, re- when he was really digging into it, he said, Jeff, this is a process. It's, it's a process, right? Like it's not going to drop out of the sky and hit yeah. the earth and obliterate it. It's a process. It says that he will not grow faint or weary, Isaiah 42, until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his Torah. And so it, it's clearly a process. Mustard seed to large tree, leaven in a lump of dough. So when someone says to me, I'm sorry, I'm just I'm, uh, no, go. go run it over you here. But when someone says to me, and by the way, like the, especially the last 200 years, uh, Christians believe that, you know, we're, we're the last generation. This is the last generation. This guy's the Antichrist. That guy's the Antichrist. Yep. I mean, that's just a theme through Christian history is like thinking you're in the, you're in the very last gen, terminal generation. Yep. But, so we especially believe that. But when someone says to me uh, today, you really believe that the world is going to become more Christian and transform? Like, look at the world today. Look at the wars going on. Look at the evil. Look at transgenderism. Look at all of this stuff, the, the, the destruction of human marriage. Look at all that we've lost. I, I would say, no, for sure. Um, it's a mustard seed that becomes a tree. And there's moments of historic judgment in history where, you know, God judges nations. Uh, but, you know, we started with 11 very confused disciples at the ascension of Jesus. Yeah. You know, they, they, they're just like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> All authority and go get the nations because he's because he's in charge. And so when someone says to me, you know, it doesn't look like uh, the world around us is, is getting better. I'd say more Christians, more professing Christians in the world today than any time in human history and more nations that we've ever been before. And I can communicate the gospel now. Right now, I can grab my phone 
I can open it up and I could preach Christ and his crown rights and his glories and his gospel live to people in New Zealand, Australia, all of Africa, all over Europe. I can talk to people all over the world and spread Christ into their nation right now, like in an instant. The word of God is on billions and billions of phones already. Right. You know, it's just continuing to be downloaded uh, across the world. We have so much, I mean, how many, church, there's 50,000 church buildings in the United States right now. Right. I mean, yeah, it is absolutely an increase. Uh, and it's so funny. Why are why, why aren't these verses being taught? Why, why is this perspective being overstepped? I, I mean, I know historically this wasn't the case. We know that this was the, the view of the Puritans. We know this is the view of uh, the pilgrims coming over and why America is the way that it, that it is. Uh, they were post mill. They're post mill. We also know that this was the way of even medieval Europe and, and uh, those that were saved in that generation as well. And Athanasius. Athanasius and the early church. And so why, why is this not being taught? Why? And actually, I'm going to say one last thing. Keep that question there. Okay. The other thing is that people need to know that we're not saying that we do this. It's that through the spirit of God, through the, if I look at a spear and I think the front of the spear is the gospel and I go, the spirit of God is, is right at the front, saving souls, bringing them to, to life, regenerating, born again, transforming life. But from that point is it's permeating not just your relationship with the Lord, but also the way that you raise your kids and the way that you educate your family and the way that you do church and the way you do community and the media that you do and the way you spend your money and the economics and, and the government and the politics and the people you hire at your police station or whatever it is. It just needs to permeate further. It's just not. It's like stabbing the heart and they're like, okay, let's just wait until Christ comes back. Why is this, there's this gap between salvation and an actual culture change? So I don't have all the answers, but I, I, I would think there are some, some issues you can look at and say, you can point to and say, okay, that's clearly a cause of the woes that we have today. Yeah. So I would say, first of all, it's the pulpit um, and it's the, the proclamation of the gospel coming from the pulpit and the proclamation of the gospel not coming into the public square or coming into the public square in a way that's not the gospel the apostles preached. Sure. So we preach a gospel today that is very, will you give Jesus a chance? Will you try Jesus? So it's sort of like even like a, a play on the myth of neutrality, even as I tell someone the gospel. Maybe I just need to make friends with them for a while and just show them through my good deeds that right. uh, they should follow Jesus too, you know, sort of a thing. Uh, and that's not to say that we shouldn't be doing good works in the world and we want we don't want people to glorify our Father in heaven by seeing those good works. Of course we do. But those good works aren't going to save my neighbor from their sin. Mm -hmm. The proclamation of the gospel that you read in the book of Acts was a proclamation of the gospel that, that had an emphasis on the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it was a command to repent and to believe. They didn't come into the, to the public square placating to people. They came into the world and it created riots. They're being lowered out of windows. They're being beaten. They're being thrashed by the people around them. And what else is happening? Acts chapter nine, while people are taking oaths to kill Paul, and they want them dead, it says the church is built up, they experience peace and they are multiplied. Why? They're a faithful proclamation of the gospel that preaches it with clarity. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did. Here's what's wrong with you. Now you need to repent and believe in a hurry and come to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. It was an understanding that God is holy, Christ is king, you better repent and believe. It wasn't a, uh, will you give Jesus a chance? Yeah, it's will you not, try him out? It's not just savior. It, or he's not just savior, he's Lord. Right, and, and that was the understanding. And, and the whole concept of repent and believe, right? Like a, a biblical faith is a repentant faith. Yep. But we teach people today, oftentimes you hear kind of, it's very popular today, 
that if you just acknowledge and acquiesce to these facts about Jesus and just say they're true, then you're taking his punch, you're going to heaven one day. And, and sorry, the demons do that too. They, yep. they acquiesce to all the facts of the gospel. They would say those are all true facts, but they will not turn to him. Yep. They won't turn to Christ. And so we have a, a, a proclamation of the gospel that isn't clearly communicated. And we also have a proclamation of the gospel that's not coming into the public square. Christianity is supposed to be, the Christian church is supposed to be that helpmeet of Jesus that brings about his dominion in the world. But it's supposed to go into the world. We've treated Sunday worship services as the evangelism tent. Let's invite people to come to this place of worship and maybe we can build our worship service in such a way where it's gonna be very appealing and attracting uh, to unbelievers. Well, scripture says that unbelievers hate God. They're enemies of God. They, They don't seek for God. They're fallen. They're dead in their sins and trespasses. What they need is they need the power of God to bring them to salvation, which is only the gospel itself. And it is an odd thing that we would take unbelievers and say, please come to church to get saved. The, the church, the local gathering is supposed to be the place of the saved. It's not to say we don't want unbelievers to show up. Of course we do. But I want to say this. If an unbeliever who doesn't know Christ comes into a solid biblical church, not a perfect church, but a solid biblical church, I think after a couple of weeks, apart from regeneration, they're not coming back. Yep. I've got story after story of that happening in our local fellowship where unbelievers come. They hang out for two or three weeks. I've even had people tell me afterwards about four weeks coming to church don't show up anymore. They're clearly unbelievers. We've given them the gospel, all of that. We know they're unbelievers. And they've told me, ah, yeah, you know, I, it's clear I'm not a Christian and I, I I don't really belong there. And not like they're not welcome, but they just know through the message being preached from the pulpit that we're encouraging them not to pretend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, but but here's the point. The, the place that we're supposed to go to bring the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, is the public square. Yes, out. Acts, you see that's the methodology of the leaders of the church, the apostles, they go to the public square, which is interesting because Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are not an offensive moving force. Gates are defensive. Yep. So we tend to think of like the gates coming to fall on a church and they're not going to beat us. Yeah. No, Jesus says he's going to build a church and the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. Meaning the church is supposed to be the offensive force in history that's conquering this place of Satan and darkness. And the gates of hell can't prevail against us. We're going to overcome them. And so we're supposed to go into the public square. So I think that's an answer. But there's also the issue, and this is clearly a major issue, while eschatology... And, you know, we agree fundamentally, amil, post-mill, pre-mill, we agree. Christ is returning. He's returning physically. There's going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. There's a final day of judgment. All We all agree on that. That's the core stuff we all, we're brothers on, and that's what's important. And these, these eschatological issues are technically side issues, but they are side issues with so much dramatic impact. And so when someone says to a congregation or congregations of believers that the world's going to go to hell in a handbasket. All your work here is irrelevant. This stuff is just a throwaway anyways. Don't bother polishing brass on a sinking ship. Literally solid believing teachers have said those sorts of things. Yep. When you teach Christians that, they will act and live accordingly. Yes. They will. Yep. And so when you tell Christians that it's better that the culture goes to hell, because it means Christ is returning at any moment. Yeah, you're actually excited for it to get worse Yeah, you, under that view. You literally, how many videos will you find on YouTube right now? If you go to find some 
uh, cultural demise, some destruction, some evil famine or whatever in the world, where you see Christians literally uploading videos thrilled. Yep. Guys, at any moment, we're out of here. We're out of here. And all they're saying is like, to my loved ones, if you see this video, just know, like, you know, and rather than saying, today is the day of salvation, you should be going out into the world and preaching that gospel. Look, irrespective of your eschatological beliefs, the marching orders are the same for all of us. Win the nations, baptize them, teach them to obey Jesus. But what happens is, is that, eschatology matters and it has an impact. And so if you train Christians that all of this is irrelevant to God and the best thing is to get uh, pulled away into the spiritual gassy existence out there somewhere, they will live and act accordingly. They'll build accordingly. I mean, I've talked to, and this probably happened to you as well. How many people have you ever interacted with Christians who have said, yeah, when I believe that, before about like the destruction of the world and it's good for us and the secret rapture, all this stuff. Like my wife and I didn't want to have any kids because we thought, what's the point of having children right now if Jesus is about to return? I don't want them to be living during the tribulation. I mean, they literally plan their families around it. Yeah, and it goes even further than that. It's not just their their family uh, planning, but it also is their business planning. The Christian is is checked out that there is no culture war for them long term they're not they're not thinking about multi-generational inheritances for their children yeah. they're not uh, investing their money why don't we have any good tv for our children in the church because the church is checked out mm-hmm. and so we're forced to put our kids in front of terrible media yeah. when in reality we could have great content but nobody's thinking that way we used to it used to yeah and it's so frustrating even for young families and i know right now man if, if there was some really great content for kids on television uh, Christian families would be eaten up, but nobody's building yeah. that way because, again, we think that, you know, why are you going to paint a house that's burning down? What's the point? Yeah, what's the point? And so now we've talked about this, and I think a lot of people are going to have a bunch of questions about the theological implications of this. However, let's take it to practicality. So, so now you've got uh, this post-millennial view. How is that playing out here at Apologia, Tempe, Phoenix area? Uh, for us in Sedona, Cottonwood, Arizona, just north of you guys, how is that playing out practically in a way that you're going, well, I'm not going to check out from the culture. I'm actually going to build and I'm going to push and I'm going to leave a a multi-generational inheritance and I'm expecting my children to take over and expect them to do the same. And we're going to build over and over a colony for Christ that Lord willing in a hundred years will be much bigger than it is today. And a hundred years later, it's much bigger than it is that time. So what are you doing practically here? And then I want to get into a specific issue about yeah. your event. Yeah. So um, I would say first and foremost, it starts with teaching. Teaching the church, people who are under our care, teaching our families, these truths from the gospel, the authority of Christ over all things, the hope we have for the future, uh, the understanding that all of life is under Christ, whether it's individual, whether it's the family, whether it's the church, whether it's the state, teaching Christians, uh, you know, even things like, your work and your labors are worship, right? Yes. You don't need to be this this pastor to get to the elite status of the spiritual. It does, the spiritual stuff is not just taking place in the church. Yes. It's taking place, everything is under the rule of Christ. Everything matters and is it, you want to do it for the glory of God. And so, you know, encouraging artists and encouraging people to create media, encouraging people to build businesses that, are, that produce good things yes. for the glory of God. And, and training people to, to have a, a comprehensive Christian worldview and one that's also not tinged with Gnosticism, 
right? You know what I mean? Like seeing just this, this spiritual is what's better and this is all a throwaway and is tainted with, with sin and evil. God's not concerned with it. That's Gnosticism. Yep. You know what I mean? So like really trying to fight against uh, Gnosticism in the Christian well, church. Well, I think about like, you know, when you think about the Amish, you think, oh, they build great things. When you think about the, the Christian church, you think, oh, if it's Christian, I kind of don't want to watch that movie. No, I don't or, ever, I hate, you, I hate Christian music. Yeah, Christian music, uh, not really excited. You know, so we, we've earned a reputation of terrible creation. Yeah. When we, in reality, we are the ones that have truth. We understand beauty uh, in a way that no other human being outside of Christ can understand. Yet we are producing the worst stuff. Yeah. And, and it wasn't, it's not our history. It's not our history. Yeah. yeah. Look at the buildings and the look buildings, at the, the architecture, the art. Yeah. The schools. Yeah. The schools, the medicine, science, all of that. We did that. These Ivy League schools, you look at Harvard and Yale and you look at things like even Oxford and Cambridge. Yeah. Those are Christian institutions. We built that stuff and uh, we walked away from it, I think, because um, for the reasons I've already stated, we, we lose the, the, the vision, the view of Christ as Lord over all things. We, again, we're tinged with Gnosticism in more ways than we could possibly understand. And uh, we think this is all a throwaway. So we just, we do, we literally throw it away. It becomes part of the trash heap of history. And so, so I, I think it's important. So when I, when I think about what we're doing, however imperfectly, we want to first train and teach a, a full comprehensive biblical worldview yep. to put that deposit into this generation so they could pass it along to the next. We have tried to make sure that we model as, as leaders at Apologia what it should look like to go preach the gospel in the public square. We, I, we, I've always felt uh, it's there's so much hypocrisy. If a pastor or a leader says to the church body, you need to be preaching the gospel in, in the world around you, reach people around you, and they never see their pastor or their leaders out. doing it. And so we've always had the mindset, no, we're supposed to lead from the front. That's what the apostles did. They were the ones going into the public square. They were bringing people with them. The world's, the, the Christian churches saw them and said, they're our example. And that's the kind of trouble they would cause, godly, righteous controversy. And uh, and so we have always believed that we need to be bringing our church into the public square. And I got to tell you, one of the greatest blessings and humbling honors for me today, and it's funny, I've seen some people complain. We put a lot of videos on an Apologia Studios now. Sometimes, a lot of times, they're not of me. Now, early on, most of the videos were all of me because, you know, we're just building a church and growing and raising people up and those sorts of things. So if it's going out and we're preaching the gospel or getting in some conflict, the cameras are there. It's kind of me leading this. And now people are saying, well, where's Jeff? Like, you got all these videos now of, of these other guys. I have no idea who they are out preaching the gospel and in conflict with others and teaching this or teaching that. And they'll say, I want to see Jeff. And, and you're I, like, no, this is the mission is to get more people, not just Jeff. Right. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm an absolute failure as a pastor if I don't make myself obsolete. Like yes. that, that's the goal of a pastor, you know, like it or not, that's the goal of pastor. You are to teach in such a way, preach in such a way, live in such a way serve in such a way that you make yourself obsolete. Mm -hmm. and that sounds like a strange thing to do for a career, but sure. this isn't a career. Yep. It's a calling. And so we're raising people up and we are, we have our church is out at the abortion mill all week long. They're at strip clubs preaching the gospel. They're at downtown Phoenix where there's 20,000 people that show up. Uh, they're at ASU, they're on Mill Avenue. And it's not me. It's our church body. It's men Amen. and women who are out there preaching the gospel. They're doing that and they're going they have an understanding the the mission is to go to the world yep. and bring it to the public square. So we're trying to raise up people that will see the mission in that way. They will bring the gospel to the world. 
we bring the authority of Christ, the claims of Christ, the call to repentance to legislators. And, and we do it in, in a number of areas, but one particular area that people are well aware of with apologia is, is the area of end abortion now. Yep. So you'll see videos of us in Louisiana. You'll see videos of us in Colorado. You'll see before legislatures. We've gotten bills of abolition and equal protection into multiple states across the union. We have more coming over the next six months. Um, and uh, we're a part of the bill that was the historic bill in 50 years of Roe versus Wade, never a bill of abolition that made it to hearing, then passed hearing onto the floor. Ours was that bill, created no small controversy. It was Rachel Maddow talked about it, it was New York Times. I mean, I think today I saw it on CNN. I mean, it's months old, but they're still talking about it. And uh, so we're part of the movement of churches and raising up churches that are trying to abolish abortion in the name of Christ. Yes. And we're almost there. And so um, praise the Lord for that. And uh, so there's there's that aspect. Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of people don't realize that these moral issues are moral issues because they're against the moral law of God. When you think about transgenderism, when you think about homosexuality, when you think about abortion, pornography, divorce, this shouldn't be the secular world talking about these things. That These are Christian issues they are, because yeah. they're God's issues because they're Ten Commandment issues. Right. And, and so um, we need to be out, again, bringing the kingdom beyond the backyard mm-hmm. of justification by faith alone, but into those layers that go deeper and further out there's something important here. This is probably a key issue. People will say today, because they've been trained to say it by pastors, let's be honest, it came from the pulpit first. Um, you know, Christians shouldn't get involved in politics. Mm. Let's be honest, it's pastors who taught them that. They're reciting what their leaders have taught them. So when someone says to me, you know, uh, you know Christians shouldn't have anything to do with politics, what, they're, what the implicit argument there is that Jesus isn't Lord over that. Yes. And I'm that's sorry. What, that's what they're saying. Exactly. I'm yeah. sorry. I don't buy that. Yeah. All authority in heaven and on earth means on earth too. Yes. Now that means also over legislators. And, and I, I will say King of Kings and Lord of Lords should refute that immediately because he has the authority to tell the Kings of the earth what to do. But you also have passages in scripture that are explicit. Psalm chapter two, the father says to the son, ask of me, I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, the very ends of the earth for your possession. Sounds like Christian nationalism. And then he says to the Kings of the earth, be wise to obey the son or you'll perish. That's from God to the rulers of the world. You obey my son or you'll perish. So when someone says Christians shouldn't be involved in politics, I would say you need to read your Bible um, because that's just not the message of the Bible. Um, he has all authority there too. But, but the key issue here is this, is that when someone says Christians shouldn't be involved in those areas, I wanna say respectfully, wait a minute, in the legislature, they are dealing with moral issues. Because, of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Like yeah. Directly of those issues. Yeah. I mean, they're, 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 think about it. Every, every single law that's put into place in a legislature, what are, they do, what are they doing? What are they saying with these laws? They're saying that we have a moral responsibility. We have an ought to do A, B, or C. Yep. So what they do is they legislate based upon their responsibility morally to do this or that. So- the legislature deals with moral issues, oughts. Mm-hmm. We ought to do this. Yep. We ought not do that. Now, all I say in this regard is to Christians, when you say Christians shouldn't be involved in that area, are you saying that Jesus has nothing to say about morality? And if you say, oh, Jesus has something to say about morality, I would say fantastic. So then you have to bring the message of Jesus into the legislature. Because if it's moral issues, it's something that Jesus governs. And Jesus says, you're to teach the nations to obey him. And that includes 
Legislation. Legislation, yeah, yeah. Go therefore and make disciples of the nation, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And this is, again, it shouldn't shock anybody. But what I think that this conversation, and I still have want to talk to you more about um, how this is permeating here locally, but this conversation is just taking the gospel beyond salvation, grace through faith in Christ alone. Just the basics of, again, even in the Reformed camp, it's going beyond that spot. But we, we need to figure out how are we going to, how are we going to bridge that gap? What's that first step? And I like what you're doing here locally, getting the gospel out. Should we be thinking about the gospel and all of Christ and all of life? What is, the, what is an easy first step to kind of take that gospel further in your own life? I think about kids. I think about your education and how you're training your kids. Or I think about the media that you're consuming. Or, you know, what, what were those first elements that you're like, Christianity is not going to just stay here in a spiritual realm. It's going to actually go here next and here next. I mean, obviously you're talking about politics. That seems a little bit like, where do I even begin? It's a big jump. It's a jump. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of the basic level stuff, um, it starts with the family. Mm-hmm. That's the key issue. It starts with the family and however imperfectly we all do it, it we need to be clear in communicating the good news of, of the kingdom and Christ's authority to our family. Yep. Christ isn't just Lord over our family. He's Lord over all the earth. Yes. He's, he's Savior and King. And within our churches, the message that He is Savior and King, He has authority over all things. Communicating a, a, a complete, comprehensive Christian worldview to our kids, and this, this is a key issue. Um, years ago, I was a little, a little gentler at saying it, um, but I'm not as gentle today. I'm not mean-spirited about it, but not as gentle and more forceful. Christians have got to get their kids out of the public school yes. government education system because those are places where they have a worldview. They are instructing and discipling your children. They are teaching them about ethics. They are teaching them metaphysics and ontology. They are teaching them epistemology, how they can know what they know. They're teaching a view of origins and all those things are in conflict with a Christian worldview. They are spending more time discipling your children than you are admit it. Yep. And that's the key thing we have to just finally come to terms with. Admit the fact that they are spending more time discipling and educating your children than you are. And they're doing it in a foreign worldview. So many Christians wonder, how are my kids going, you know, f- just so far astray and all these different things and adopting these crazy things? We did everything right. You sent them. Yep. You sent them to be trained. Yep. And so get your kids out. We have to raise up our children in a comprehensive Christian worldview and uh, have them prepared to be able to deal with the world, to argue with the world, to contend for Christ, all of that. And so I think it starts primarily in the family. And I think it's important for us to to raise our kids and to talk about in our churches uh, to see the whole world again as under Christ's rule and authority and to do what you do to the glory of God. And we have to influence the world with the light of Christ and the gospel itself in every area of life. You know, we need to make sure that we're not training our, our children and our churches to view life, the world in a compartmentalized way, the spiritual over there. And this is just the mundane yeah. sort of earthly physical stuff doesn't really matter. No, Christians should be doing what we've done in history and that's doing what we do to the glory of God, making beautiful things for God, uh, being innovative for yes. God. Because you think about, you know, it's something that David and I, David Bonson and I were talking about recently, just the creation account alone, you can see there that God is creator. What does he do? He makes beautiful things. He, he makes good things and he's innovative. He yes. makes it out of nothing. And, you know, and, He's God, we're the creatures, we're supposed to take dominion over the earth, 
that's, that is really our calling and vocation is to be the image of God, light of God in the world. So Christians should be making good things. They should be innovative. You know, they should be responsible. Beautiful. Exactly. And so we, we had that view in history. It's all over. It's not new. This isn't a novelty, but we have to recover that. And recovering that, I think, is going to come down to essentially, do we believe that Christ is Lord? Like that's the key issue, that he's actually in authority over all these things today. So we need to be basically raising people up to, to know these things, to believe these things, to hold these things, and send them off into the world uh, to be people who bring light and salt to the world. And this is obviously an organic over time, you know, in many years. It, it takes even, as I've shifted into this theological position, it's taken me a lot of unlearning and relearning, yeah. a lot of breaking of old habits, a lot of uh, trying to communicate and persuade this conversation with other people, uh, verbal processing, uh, theological stuff. I mean, it's just, it's just a lot because you've been living in it as a culture in the church here in America for so long that you don't realize how much of it's on you. Yeah. And so just, I, I'm just encouraging anybody that's listening and watching is to take the time and be okay with the journey. I mean, it took me, how many years did it take you to go from, you know, an Arminian view to a reform view to a post-millennial view to a theonomic view? I mean, it's just usually years. takes people a lot of time. Years, yeah. And uh, be patient on that journey. You don't need to make these big transitions. But the thing I think a lot of people appreciate is that they know that there's alternative views mm -hmm. because no one ever even heard about post-millennialism in the modern, in the last, you know, 50 years. People are like, what? You know, when you think about David Chilton, back when he was writing these books, he had to be a nutcase to that right. community, right? Yeah, yeah for them, and so, um, yeah, all those guys that were like the sort of more historic view, like look like, you know, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Period. It's like homeschoolers in the 80s. And so you're, you're doing an event here, and I want to talk about that because this is another outflow of this perspective. It's going out further. It's training up men. It's training up families. It's giving them vision the, you know, theological vision, understanding of, of encouraging them to take the glory of God beyond salvation. And you're having an event. Tell us about this event. Don't just tell us about this event, but tell us the long-term plan. Sure. Is this happening every year? Yeah, absolutely. So just, I'll just say one word to the last thing you said about the, the time and the patience and how you just sort of like you start rethinking things. One of the things that will happen regularly when I'm traveling the country and I meet people who have been blessed and impacted by our ministry, our teaching ministry, is I'll have people often come up to me and say, hey, I'm post-mill now. And um, I've always been very clear. I'm not trying to get people on my team, yeah. right? I'm not trying to have people just join this club. Isn't this the, the cool that post-mill club? Yeah. Um, I want these truths to be in people so that they live accordingly. So what I always say is the same thing when guys will come to me or girls will come to me and say, hey, I'm post-mill now. I'll say, praise God, let's get to work. Amen. Because that's the, that's the main issue that I want to make sure I press is that these things, these concepts, these truths have implications for, for your life and the world. So let's get to work. That's, that's what I'm trying to communicate. Not let's, let's get on my team, but let's get to work. And it, and it, and it will shape you and make you rethink a lot of stuff. So, and you know, if you think about things in a different way, if you go from thinking this is the terminal generation, we're at the very end mm -hmm. to thinking, perhaps we're in the infancy of the church. Yeah. That'll change, right? Because then you go, oh, I'm going to start thinking about my grandkids. I'm going to have descendants <laughs> a thousand years from today. Right. Yeah. Like, what if there's like another 25,000 years of church history? Yeah. Like that, that, that can do two things. It can shock people and it can anger people. Yeah. Because they do like, I don't want that. Like, I'm going to get out of here tonight. Yeah. And, and, and just to challenge people with that thought alone, what if we're actually, when people 25,000 years 
from now are looking back, they'll be looking at us as the as part of that infancy of the church. It was just it was just two thousand years in. Yep. You know what I mean? Like we are so far along now. What if we are the infancy of the church? There's a lot to do. It'll make you rethink so much about your kids, your grandkids, the stuff that you're doing, the businesses that you're building. You know what I mean? It just changes a lot. So with that in mind, um, ReformCon, it's our conference. It's not just something to do. Uh, it's actually super expensive and uh, we're probably going to lose our butts on it. But um, But it's worth it for us as an investment because... What we hope to do here is to, to, to give a Christian conference experience that is good, that blesses people, that's fun. <laughs> you know, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to have fellowship. We were hoping to, because, you know, typically Christian conferences can be amazing. You can learn so much, but like, you know, it's like two or three days of a theological beatdown. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you're there like eight in the morning and you just get talked to every hour for like, you know, till nine at night. And then next day it's all over again. By the middle of the second day, you've forgotten everything you've learned because yeah. you just can't contain it all. And it's great, but it's also kind of a beatdown. Um, we want to have a Christian conference where you are equipped, you are taught, you learn you learn a lot, but you get to fellowship, you get to enjoy yourself. We have an after party, we have performances. Hmm. So we have leaders in different areas who are believers and lead like believers in those areas and just do it well. Like we've got a, a sports star, um, uh, baseball, professional baseball teams across the country. Um, he's incredible. Uh, and uh, we have... You know, David Bonson is all over the news, Fox Business, Fox News, all over the news as a leader, not because they're like, let's get the Christian guy on, talk about economics, because he's good at what he does. Yep. And guess what? He is the son of Greg Bonson. Bonson yeah. And he's operating off a Christian worldview. He's appealing to scripture and his thinking and all the rest. But the world goes to him because he's just good at what he does, better than most people. And so they're appealing to him. So we have David Bonson to talk about economics. We have education. Uh, I'm doing something actually uh, in terms of arts and performance. Um, and so there'll be performances scattered throughout all these different talks. Gives your brain a break. Yeah. And you're going to enjoy yourself. You know, you're going to have a good time. And and the, the, the issue, though, is, is with the conference, we want to do our very best to continue to teach and encourage believers to see that the word of God, the revelation of God is the standard for everything. Mm. Now, that's it shouldn't it shouldn't seem controversial or be controversial to say that. But when you say by this standard. Mm-hmm. This is the standard for everything. Yep. And you say that applies to education. Guess what that does? That comes right into the face of public education. Yep. You can't say by this standard and for then send your kids. knowledge and then go there. So how do we, Christians take back over education like we once owned it by this standard? How does that look? So we have you know leaders in that area to do exactly that thing, teach you how to do it. In the area of economics, in the area of politics and government, how do we bring this standard by this standard to our government officials? We have people who are doing that. We're doing that. And others are doing that. We have the area of the arts and performance and all of that. So the whole theme of the conference is by this standard. And that really is, is yeah, it's an outworking of the theological position of our church and others that say that Christ has all authority and his law is the standard. And it matters everywhere. So Reform Con by this standard is all of life under the authority of Christ and standing on the word of God as the, the standard. And this is October for this year, 2022. Reformation Day weekend. Okay. Amen. And this is something that, again, if you can't make it this year, you can come next year. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that you're doing this because um, it's, yeah, it's not, a, it's not a business. We're not 
trying here to make money. Right. Um, not that it's a bad thing to make money, but the reality is, is that I, we need more churches, more ministries, more businessmen to put on resources to educate men and women and families on what it really means to live a whole Christian life with a complete biblical worldview. And so I appreciate that you're doing that. They can get tickets at reformcon.org. I was just going to say that. Yeah. And anything else that you want to share, where should people be following your journey? I know End Abortion Now has been kind of like a highlight thing for you right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what are a couple links, things that you want to just kind of let people know about? Yeah, so apologiastudios.com uh, is where people can go to get all the shows we do, different platforms. Uh, they can do all access and they can get access to all this additional content and support our ministry. They can also get Bonson U, which is completely for free. Um, and, uh, the Bonson family entrusted us with Greg Bonson's life work. And so seminary lectures, church, everything from philosophy to apologetics, to history, to uh, exegesis. I mean, you name it, it's a seminary course for free, uh, from one of the greats in church history. It's all at apologiastudios.com. You can go to Apologia Studios on YouTube and look at over 2000 videos of us on the streets doing public debate, moderated public debate, just tons of teaching, endabortionnow.com is where people can go to get free training and free resources to go save lives at the abortion mill and be a part of this journey with us as a church where we abolish abortion and criminalize it for the glory of God. Tens of thousands of babies have been saved uh, through the churches that we've uh, partnered with and we've raised up to do this work. Uh, That's a life well lived as far as I'm concerned. Um, And so that's what's going on there and abortionnow.com. So yeah, people can go to any of those places. And tons of sermons from you and Dr. White. Yep. And uh, they've been a great resource to me uh, over the years. And so, uh, so yeah, thanks everybody. If you're watching this as a video uh, for joining and listening to uh, Jeff Durbin and myself talk about a biblical worldview of Christian nationalism. What does that really look like? Uh, if you are a regular listener to this podcast, thank you guys so much. Your uh, listenership and your faithfulness it means a lot to our ministry. If you leave a review, you don't even need to write something. Uh, just go in there. Let us know how, how things are going. We'd love to have you continue to be a part of our show. And this episode is Real Christianity. My name is Dale Partridge, Jeff Durbin. Thanks for having me, brother. We'll see you guys next time. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. Also, would you consider leaving a review? You don't need to write anything. Just tap the stars in your podcast app. But if you would write a review, we will read it. Real Christianity is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, and of course, at relearn.org. You can also follow along on social media. Just search for relearn.org or Dale Partridge on just about every social media platform. Lastly, if you feel led to support our ministry financially as we fight to bring the church back to the Bible, you can always do that at relearn.org forward slash donate. Donate.